All right, Jesse, the level of insanity with Mrs. Bakes people into tea cakes and Mr. Sleeps next to a corpse for seven years was almost a bit too much, but very Halloween-y. Please tell me we have, you know, some regular old jerk-offs killing people they're supposed to love again. <laughs> that was that was really good. We have the king of all jerk-offs in this episode. When a sweet middle-aged mother is murdered in cold blood in a church parking lot, the investigation reveals a deadly web of corruption, dominance, illicit trysts, and of course, murder. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Bray. And this is Love Murder. Hello, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, the podcast where true crime meets human interest and where otherwise normal people get caught up in deadly schemes. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app and help new people find us. All right, Andy. This one is a little different because this is kind of a hometown case to me. Oh, shit. Yep. This is a Hudson Valley case. So currently I live in a little town called Millerton, which is obviously very familiar to Andy. She's yeah. been here several times. <laughs> she has her own suite in my room. And by suite, I mean very old, very tiny guest room. I do. And everyone back off. <laughs> it's yours. Um, so Pleasant Valley is just about a half hour outside of Millerton on my way to Poughkeepsie. And I actually have to pass through it to uh, go to my doctor. And it is basically the town that Puerta Azul, our favorite Mexican place, is in. Oh, my God. Shout out to Puerta Azul. We love you, Puerto Azul. Best margaritas ever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. And that's like, Andy, every time she comes from LA, I'm we go to Puerto Azul. Yeah. It's, it's pretty bomb. Yeah, it really is. So anyway, this is our hometown case. It's great. I found it through this like amazing true crime book. And it, the author has a ton of books. His name is M. William Phelps. The book is called Deadly Secrets. And it is a twisty, interesting case of corruption and manipulation and secret affairs. And just when you think you knew who the killer was, there's a twist. I love a twist. Right? So this yeah. one is really fun. We're going to do it in a different way. Usually I give you guys an intro and then we go back chronologically and I kind of talk about the people involved, you know, from when they were young or when they met or whatever. Yeah. We're actually going to follow the investigation with this one. So Ooh. yeah. No, I like that. Let's get it on. Okay. The evening of October 28th, 1999 was a beautiful, crisp autumnal night in Pleasant Valley, New York. Pleasant Valley is a picturesque small town nestled in the Hudson River Valley, surrounded by hills and forest. At this time of year, the trees were blazing in shades of red, orange, burnt umber, and children were preparing excitedly for Halloween. Decorations were out in front yards all over town, and when Susan Fassett stepped out of the United Methodist Church after her choir practice around 8.30 p.m., 
It was just past dark, and the air smelled of distant wood smoke. The bubbly middle-aged mother chatted animatedly as she exchanged goodbyes with her choir mates. The women discussed the delicious chill in the air, their excitement over the new song set for Sunday service, and the upcoming holiday season. Although late October is not known as a season of rebirth, it was for Susan. She and her husband had turned a new leaf in their once-faltering marriage, and her grown sons were happy. Her choir mates and friends reported a new optimism and spring in her step as she bid adieu that evening. Susan crossed the street to the vacant parking lot and unlocked the door to her brand new Jeep Cherokee. The muffled sound of the church organ still drifted in the night air, offset by the gentle buzzing of evening traffic on Route 72, when suddenly the peace and tranquility of the quiet town was ripped apart when the sound of six bullets echoed <gasps> through the valley. Ooh. Susan's friends ran to the sound of the fireworks. Watching a 1997 Ford Taurus peel out of the nearly empty parking lot and finding Susan unconscious, bathed in blood and gurgling for air. Police would have to untangle a vicious web of corruption, love, and lust, revealing a dangerous double life filled with dominance, illicit lovers, and secret sex tapes before they isolated the killer, or killers, of sweet Susan Fassett. It would be a case that would scandalize the region and bring sordid truths to the surface in a most unpleasant way in the so-called Pleasant Valley. I, I see what you did there. <laughs> I know that was pretty easy. That was kind of a slam dunk. Yeah. I, I, I shouldn't take any, any kudos for that one. <laughs> that was some low-hanging fruit. <laughs> so here we are, and we're going to go right from that moment into the story. Okay. So onlookers called 911 immediately, and Susan's friends did their best to comfort her as they waited for the EMTs, but she was mostly unconscious and seemed like she was struggling for breath at this point. I was going to say, how many people were there? Like, how many people ran to see her? That's like a, a very traumatic thing to see, and then B, you know... Like yeah, church. so it was – I think it was like a choir of like somewhere between 20 and 30 people, but I don't oh. know how many people were actually still there because she had stayed a little late and there were some people just kind of lingering in the parking lot. Okay. So I think it was a small group, but there was also people still practicing in the church. Got it. So the, the organ was still playing. Some people were still working on some songs. So there was still a, a fairly decent group, but at that time of night – this time of year, it's very dark. So, yeah. and it's it's still like a rural area. Like when we when you come to visit and we go to Puerto Azul, I can take you to this church. Okay. We can go to this exact spot, and it backs up into a wooded area. And where she was parked, it is possible to see how somebody could have potentially gotten away with shooting somebody and leaving. You know, even though there's a lot of people around. Now it's so crazy because church is supposed to be such a like sacred, safe place. You know. That's why this, I think this murder hits such a chord. It's a place you're supposed to feel protected and, you know, it's a place where you are speaking to your maker and especially being in a choir, you're, you know, celebrating, you know, what you believe in and, and speaking directly to that person, you know? 
Yeah. Ugh. So basically then the emergency services came really, really fast. They took Susan, who was still alive at that point, to St. Francis Hospital in Poughkeepsie, which now, if you live in this area, is the Mid-Hudson Regional Hospital. So while Susan was being tirelessly worked on, 34-year-old New York State Police Lieutenant Art Boyko arrived on the scene to investigate. So Boyko, we're going to follow him mostly throughout this investigation. So he's kind of our leading man in this story. Okay. He looks completely like a handsome, stereotypical law enforcement agent. He's like tall, nice cheekbones, that buzzed haircut. He kind of looks like um, like a buffer version of the S.H.I.E.L.D. guy from the Avengers. The S.H.I.E.L.D. agent, head of S.H.I.E.L.D. I don't know what his name is. Okay, I'll look him up. <laughs> yeah, look him up. So we'll definitely put up Art Boyko's picture on the Instagram too because we're going to be going along the investigation with him. So Boyko arrives, secures the scene, and starts interviewing the witnesses and overseeing the collection of forensic evidence. Several choir members reported having seen a light-colored station wagon, most likely a Ford, speeding out of the parking lot after the shots were fired. It was determined the killer used a 45, which is super-duper loud. Witnesses reported it sounded like a cannon going off. Oh, my God. Yep. And this was a relatively quiet evening, so it really thundered. Immediately, Boyko knows that this is neither a carjacking slash robbery nor a professional hit. Obviously, nothing was stolen. And while clearly Susan was targeted, the hit was very messy. The bullets striking Susan all over her body rather than done execution style in the back of the head. Yep. So he immediately clears the members of the choir. They had no idea what was going on. It's clear that nobody who was already there, you know, participated in this murder. Yeah. Um, And he decides to look a little closer to home as to who could possibly want Susan, a sweet middle-aged churchgoer who works for the city of Poughkeepsie, dead. I mean, she's the least likely person that you would imagine being embroiled in this sort of thing. She she looks like kind of like a skinny Mrs. Claus. When when I show you pictures, you'll be like, she has like a like white hair and like a little bouffant and like, you know, big like 80s style glasses, even though it's the 90s. Yeah, what is going on? Yeah. So naturally the lieutenant needs to look at the husband first, uh, because it's always the husband. Yep. And this is where it gets both interesting and complicated. Interesting because Susan's friends report that the marriage had been somewhat troubled, though the two seemed on the mend. Also interesting that Jeff, Susan's husband, drives the exact type of car that was seen exiting the parking lot after the shooting. Uh, Excuse me? Yeah, it's looking not so good for Jeff. And what makes this more complicated for the investigators is that Jeff Fassett is one of their own. At the time of the shooting, Jeff was a 24-year veteran of the Poughkeepsie Police Department. Oh, no. And I know we've heard so many stories and pods and everything told with cops being, you know, to pin. So many, like, officers' wives' stories and that sort of thing. So – they're like, oh, crap. Jeff would need to be notified, questioned. His service weapon needed to be test-fired and checked. Yeah. So obviously it's getting late. Susan should have been home by now. And Jeff and his 20-year-old son, Jason, had been calling the church to figure out why Susan, who's Jason's mother, was so late returning home. And the church personnel were dodging their questions because the police said not to tell them because obviously Jeff was a suspect. Yeah. Yep. 
So finally, like one little old lady answered the phone and was just like broke down because it was Jason. It was Susan's son. And she was like, I'm so sorry your mom was shot. I can't tell you anymore. So now they know that she was shot. They don't know whether she's dead or alive. They don't know where she is. If she's like, if it was something that she's going to live through, you know? Yeah, I know that that was like not a good move. But also like you can't put it on like a bunch of church people to. No, they should have had an officer answering the phone, you know, or overseeing it because yeah, usually church folk aren't the lyingest liars no, over there. No, they're, they're like trying to be honest and, you know, do the right thing under God. And like, they're like, cops are like, you got to lie to them. <laughs> yeah, to a family that is confused and desperate to know. Yeah, tell her that she's uh, she's taking a big duke. Yeah, yeah tell her like, that. Uh... What? <laughs> yeah. So, unfortunately, by the time Susan's family was told of her shooting, she had already passed away at the hospital. Yikes. So, it's totally understandable because Jeff is the number one suspect, but at the same time, if he's innocent, and especially if his kids have nothing to do with it, their kids, I know they didn't get a chance to say goodbye. Yeah, that's really sad. Yeah, so the medical examiner had already been called and an autopsy was about to be performed. They were not wasting any time. I mean, they obviously knew this was murder. There was no question, you know? Yeah. The investigators realizing a vehicle identical to the getaway car was licensed to Jeff Fassett and that he had scores of guns at his home, including his, you know, state-issued weapon, state-issued weapon, quickly sent a SWAT team out to the facet home preparing for a potential shootout or hostage situation. Whoa. Who would he have Mm -hmm. hostage? I don't know. Well, they don't know what his state of mind is. If he's crazy enough to use his own car to not try to cover his tracks at all and to do it in a public place like that, maybe their kids could be in trouble, you know? Yep, yep, yep. So this situation gets messier when a bystander to the shooting identifies Jeff's car, which we already knew, but they also suggest that they saw him definitively at the wheel. Okay. So so now they're like, oh, it's not just his car. There's a witness that says he was behind the car, the wheel. So it's definitely yeah. him. So at this point, of course, the New York State Police are pretty sure that they have their guy. Meanwhile, Jeff and his son Jason, who is 20 – as well as Jason's girlfriend, Sarah, and their 17-year-old second son, Christopher, are all in the house, having just found out that their wife and mother have been shot with no information. And now their house is completely surrounded by SWAT members. And they are completely in the dark about what's going on, which you can imagine would be terrifying. Uh, Yeah. And you said that Jeff is there too? So yeah, so it's Jeff, Jason, Christopher, and Jason's girlfriend, Sarah. Yeah, okay. And the house is completely surrounded. And Jeff is trying to call his own department to be like, hey, there's SWAT outside. I'm one of you guys. Why don't you just tell me what's going on and we can work this out rather than whatever operation you have going on. And they just keep transferring him and like putting him on hold and they're not talking to him. Okay. Well, if at this point you have his house surrounded, you got to talk to the guy. Exactly. So I don't know what they're doing outside, but, you know, Jeff gets really freaked out. He doesn't know what's going on. So he's like getting paranoid at this point, rightfully so. And he tells his sons to turn out all the lights in the house. And he's doing that so that the SWAT members can't see them in the house. 
Okay. And I don't know exactly what he was thinking. If he was thinking like they might shoot inside the house and he doesn't want anyone to get hurt or why, but they take that if he's like turning off the lights as a defensive posture that, that he's, yeah, that he's going to do some sort of counter strike or something. He doesn't want them to see him for a reason. So, of course, the tension at the home is at an all-time high, and a hostage negotiator is called in to basically tell the entire family to come out with their hands up at this point. Okay. Which is, again, if we're going to assume that Jeff is the suspect, makes sense, but also there's an equal chance he's not, and this is the yeah. family of the victim. Yeah, I know. It's one of that double-edged sword situations. Exactly. And I mean, you have to err on safety. So I get it. But it's terrifying. So every single member is swarmed by men with guns put on the ground and handcuffed. So even the, the sons and the son's girlfriend. Ugh. So again, nobody knows at this point if Susan is alive. I mean, nobody in her family, that is. They don't know how she was shot. They don't know why. They don't know who by. They don't know what happened. And they're taken to Troop K headquarters, and that's the state police headquarters, where they are interrogated for 15 hours. All of them? The whole family. Wow. During the interrogation, both Jason and Jeff Fassett discuss an affair Susan had been having and recently ended with a man named Fred Andrews. So Jason talked to the author of the book, M. William Phelps a lot for this. He was extremely close to his mother. So okay. they were almost like best friends even. And they had a very loving and close relationship. And so he was aware of the affair, but he was only aware of it after it ended, which it supposedly was over at this point. Okay. While still holding the facets and doing ballistic checks on their guns, the investigators decided to look into this new player in the investigation, this former affair partner. Okay. Well, they don't have to go very far to collect information on this guy. His file with the police is already extremely thick, and many of the cops are well aware of exactly who he is. Fred Andros was the former Poughkeepsie water superintendent who had signed a deal with the FBI a few months earlier to plead guilty in a corruption scheme involving other town officials. So he had been involved in a bunch of corruption and bribery type things, like essentially being like, if you want to get water to this building or this thing or this area, you have to pay me. And there were higher ups involved in this. So he was turning snitch to catch some of these higher ups and was about to testify as the government's key witness. Huh. Yep. This certainly muddied the waters. Was Susan involved in the corruption investigation? Could this actually be a hit disguised as a jealous husband's bloody revenge? Or was Fred Andrews involved not in the corruption scandal, but simply like not in the way of like it was involved in the corruption scandal? He certainly was involved, but he was just involved in this completely independently as a thwarted lover who had recently been jilted. So there's a lot of questions about this guy and he's clearly of immoral character, you know? Yeah, yeah. So all of a sudden their case against Jeff Fassett was looking less ironclad and the investigators began to move their focus to the corrupt Fred Andros. What about the car though? Was like... So the car was of definitely of a similar make and model to the car that ends up being 
the car that the killer was driving. Yeah, Taurus. Yeah, at this point, we still don't know whether or not that was Jeff's car. Okay. But it doesn't appear that the witness was very reliable. It seems like they were putting some context clues together rather than having a clear picture that it was actually Jeff. Okay. So I think everything was just heightened in that moment. And they were trying to get a read on who was behind the wheel. And somebody was like, well, it was Jeff's car. So it was Jeff, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So let's talk about Fred. So Fred is, in a word, gross. Oh, God. (laughs) Yeah, this is the description that M. William Phelps uses in his book. Fred Andros was an awkward-looking son of a gun. He kept his salt-and-pepper hair greased back and fluffed up in a pompadour in the front, like he had perhaps just come from an audition for Grease. His rough, sandpapery, pockmarked face made for a strange canvas. Fred was short, too. Some people called him repulsive, ugly, filthy, nasty. Not glowing over here. Others viewed him simply as a huckster, a charlatan, a man who thought he could take what he wanted without repercussions, including someone else's wife. In his own twisted psyche, Fred had fashioned himself a sort of big shot within the towns of Hyde Park and Poughkeepsie. He lived in Hyde Park with his wife, who was his fourth wife, Diana, and a son from a previous marriage. Wow. Yeah. So he is not a looker, but he's kind of got this like alpha male thing going on. A lot of people described him as having very Napoleon complex. So his he was short in stature, but his presence was very large. Yeah. I feel like too, I mean, like if you think about even on Sopranos, all those like short mobster guys like if you've got the attitude and the air it doesn't matter like 100 it was exactly like that and he really fashioned himself after those types of guys he wanted to be one of those like uh wise guy types yeah is he greek andros i think so that is greek isn't it yeah so yeah okay he looks greek It appeared that Susan and Fred had met at work. Both worked for the town of Poughkeepsie. Susan had been a shoulder to cry on after Fred's third wife had passed away from cancer. Though that might sound kind of nice and sympathetic, many of Susan's friends suggested that Fred had been obsessed with Susan before his wife's passing and had used it as an excuse to weasel his way into her kind heart. Gross. Super gross. Never one to ignore a soul in need. Susan had taken his calls and visits, and the two developed a friendship that turned into a sexual and romantic relationship eventually. But then he got married again to a fourth wife. Exactly. So he was all over the place. There, As we'll see, there was numerous infidelities on Fred's part. Okay. And sorry, how old was Susan? Susan was 48. Oh, wow. Okay, so young. Okay, yeah. So she's young, yeah. Okay. Exactly. Jeff had recently discovered the ongoing affair and he had confronted Fred Andrews and his wife. And so it didn't really get into this in the book, but I saw part of an episode of I'd Kill for You on Investigation Discovery about this. Okay. And Jeff Fassett himself is on the show. So, you know, uh, Susan's husband. And he said he discovered the affair doing some homemade home wiretapping. He tapped their home phone and discovered that she was having a sexual and romantic relationship with this guy. How do you tap your home phone? I don't know, but he's a cop, so he knew. That's right. Uh Uh-huh. 
Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Right. Yep. So also it's really funny because all of the people in this, so well, I'll get into it, but there's more people involved as we get into the story. And especially let's just say Fred and Susan for now are not young people. They're not sexy people. They are no. like classic upstate New Yorkers. Like, no offense to us. I live with you guys. We are just normal, nice people. We are not, you know, in LA with Andy, you know. <laughs> Hey. Um, hey. Um, but the when they do the uh what are they called? The um what is it called? The reenactments. Yeah. When they do the reenactments, they have these like young, sexy people having hot, sexy sex. And I it's feel like, like they always do that. They always do it, and it's so not accurate, guys. It's not if you see that episode, this is not what they looked like. <laughs> So, yeah, so after Jeff realizes what his wife is up to through this illegal home wiretap situation he has, he decides to confront Fred when Fred is getting out of work and he knows where he's going to be. And he goes to the parking lot and waits for him to get out of work. And Fred, who has been described by everybody as like this tough guy and bully, totally runs away with his tail between his legs and Stop. does not is like I don't know man like no we're not seeing each other I don't know what you're talking about I won't talk to her anymore bye and like runs away <laughs> wow do you think it was like a height thing I think he's just like a typical big mouth bully like when okay. you know when bullies are actually confronted when you actually step back up to them and and call them out on their shit I yeah. feel like nine times out of ten they're like uh you know, like, oh, never mind. I don't actually want to fight. You know, they just think that they can get away with the biggest bark. Yeah. Like there was even like I was in high school and there was this girl who was really, really mean to me. And I was in the hallway and one day she just kept walking by me and going like, bitch. And so like one day I just stopped. and I was like, okay, why are you calling me a bitch? Like I have never called you a bitch. I've never done anything to you. So like if, if we're really going to look at this, like you're being kind of a bitch to me. And yeah. she was like, Oh, you know, I don't really know why. I just like kind of didn't like you. And and she's like, that's kind of bitchy, huh? And I was like, yes, yes, that's really bitchy. She's like, okay, I mean, I guess we're cool then. Fine. And she never did it again. And then she was kind of nice to me. So sometimes you just got to call people out, I guess. Oh my God, so funny. People are so dumb. <laughs> people are so ridiculous. And, and high school is the worst time of everybody's life. We can all agree on that. Yeah. <laughs> Though Susan had sworn the affair was over, witnesses attested to seeing the two together only days before her murder, and based on subpoenaed phone records, she and Fred had exchanged several phone calls on the day of her death. So even though good, she's Susan. saying no, even though she's saying it's over and she swore up and down to her family it was over and to her husband, they were definitely still in touch. Death still so, banging. <laughs> yeah. It was certainly time for Lieutenant Boyko to get acquainted with the skeezy Mr. Andros, and he wasted no time at all. He drove out to Fred's home in Hyde Park at four in the morning after Susan's shooting the night before. Whoa. I know. That's commitment. Yeah. So Fred answered the door in a bathrobe, and he agreed to be interviewed, sending his bleary-eyed wife Diana back to bed. Fred told Boyko uh, and his partner Eric Underhill that he knew why they were there. I guess apparently his FBI content had called him at 11 p.m. the evening before to inform him that Susan had been murdered. 
Whoa. So he knew this was coming, this visit. It wasn't entirely unsurprising. So the FBI knew that he was having an affair with Susan as well? Yes, because they had been monitoring him for a while. Got it. So they kind of knew all of his associates and all of the nasty, dirty things he was up to. Okay. So Fred seems slightly distraught, but more matter of fact, and he confirms the affair. They had known each other for 20 years, but it had only turned romantic four years ago. Fred claimed that though the two had recently broken off the emotional affair, he hadn't actually been sexual with Susan for nearly a year and a half. He also confirmed what the phone records had already proven, that the two were still friendly and very much in touch. But he said he hadn't seen her in person since September 27th, and the shooting happened October 28th. Okay. Most importantly, Fred had a solid alibi for the time of the shooting. He belonged to a model airplane enthusiast group and had been working on his plane with another Poughkeepsie Police Department officer named Richard Byrd from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m., which was exactly when Susan was shot. I don't think I've ever heard of an alibi that sounds more fake than that. <laughs> than, the, than the model airplane enthusiast club? With a, a cop? With a cop. I mean, could you? He's obviously setting up an alibi. Unreal. <laughs> so Fred did come across extremely genuine at first. He said, I have no idea what happened or why. Susan was a lovely woman. I have no idea who'd want to hurt her. Look. I'm still in love with her. And he basically made it clear that Susan was the one who wanted to cut off the relationship, which was seconded by her family, who said the same thing. So Boyko became Fred's point of contact for future meetings, and he left the house not really convinced of any definite evil doing on Fred's part. Boyko later said, I never walked out of the house saying that he did or didn't have anything to do with Susan Fassett's death. I couldn't say. We had a rapport building. Fred was good. He manipulated me. He was good at it. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Jeff Fassett was still the most statistically likely suspect. The police were waiting for the ballistics reports on his weapons, so they conducted a polygraph, which Jeff passed with flying colors. Next came the autopsy results with one bombshell revelation. Based on sperm found in Susan's vagina, she had had sex no more than 24 to 48 hours before she had been killed. With who? That's the big question. Jeff claimed that their last sexual activity had taken place four to five days prior to her death and volunteered to submit DNA to prove it. And, and that sounds more like a marriage <laughs> marriage schedule. <laughs> anyway. I think honestly, they will be fine with every four days. <laughs> I feel like that's great. Yeah. And, well, also Fred Andros said that he hadn't been with her for a year and a half. So was there another person involved? Please tell me there's some like 20-year-old fucking hot piece who she's banging. <laughs> that would make a good story. There, There is actually someone else involved, but it might not be the contributor of the semen. So – Let's keep. I mean, how do you have just like all this semen flying around? <laughs> I don't know. Talk to me when I was in my 20s. <laughs> yeah. So this, this case gets 
seedier and seedier, no pun intended. <laughs> okay, maybe pun intended. Oh my God. Thank God for that one. Thank God for it that took one. You like five seconds, and they were the best five seconds of my life. <laughs> so, okay, like I said, Jeff gave his DNA, and at this point, he was willing to do anything that it took to catch his wife's killer. I mean, he is participating to the nth degree. He is sitting through hours and hours of interrogations. He's sitting through polygraphs. He is submitting to embarrassing questioning and, you know, kind of humiliating medical tests. Like he's having to submit his his blood to be tested. Like he's going through all of this and he's he's very committed to finding Susan's killer. So it's looking less and less likely like he's, the killer because he's working so hard with the police right now, you know? Yeah. I mean, as you should, it's like, that's how he should be acting. Exactly. And as a police officer, he knows the process. Yeah. And so it seems clear that as somebody who knew the process, if he was trying to subvert it somehow, but he's not, he's cooperating yeah. wonderfully. And he's vindicated when the semen is not a match. So they know someone else is definitely involved. Obviously, all signs were pointing back to Fred Andros. Boyko returned to interview Andros, who stuck by his story of not having had sex with Susan for more than 18 months. He also told Boyko that he didn't have any firearms in the home due to his arrest in the connection with the corruption charges, and that Susan was not involved with the scandal as either a co-conspirator or a witness. When asked about submitting a DNA sample to rule him out, Andrus refused and said he'd have to contact his attorney first. I was going to say, like, now I feel like they collect that when anyone's – like, when you get in the system. But I guess in the 90s, they didn't already. I was going to say, if he already had his record, he should already have DNA in the system. I think it depends on what type of offense it was. This is kind it of does. a white-collar crime. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I think if you do any sort of sexual offense or violent offense, they probably would collect it. Okay. But – he was just ripping people off and misappropriating uh, state and town funds, you know? Okay. So it's pretty fishy that he won't submit a DNA sample. Yeah. And it's even more fishy when a trove of guns are found in Fred's home. Ah! His, so he um, definitely lied to them about that. His wife, Diana, had just been like, they asked her if there were guns in the house, and she's like, oh, yeah, they're over here. And just there was like six or seven types of guns and weapons in the home. All right, dude. Yep. So there's already proof that Fred was lying to the police. How many more lies would they unearth during this investigation? Boyko was determined to run Fred's DNA against the sample found inside Susan. But at this point, there wasn't enough evidence to legally compel Fred to leave a blood sample. They could not get a warrant or a subpoena to make him do this at this point because he had an alibi. There's no hard evidence tying him to this. This is just hearsay that he had an affair with her. Yeah, but it's not hearsay. It's it's truth because her family's saying it as well. I feel like he's absolutely another suspect if he's the other person who was intimate with her. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you too, but for whatever reason, they could not get a judge to sign that it was enough information that could That's make him to me. give up some of his bodily fluids and the fact that he's like not cooperating no exactly so it doesn't it doesn't look bad but legally he's still within his rights so boyko needs to get crafty 
legally, the investigators are not entitled to anything on Fred's property. So that means, like, when he's over there interviewing him, he can't, like, take, you know, a hair off of a hairbrush in the bathroom or a cigarette butt or something because that is technically Fred's property. However, exactly. Yeah. If he can get him somewhere public and he abandons something like a cup or a fork, then it is admissible. So Boyko decided to attempt to buy lunch for Fred and see what he could lift off of him. He recounted the experience later to M. William Phelps. Boyko called Fred. Boyko was sitting in his car down the street from Fred's house. Hey, I brought you lunch. Let's meet up. I need to talk to you about the federal side of things. It's getting a little sticky. Which is, of course, you know, he's going to be a witness for the federal investigation. Okay, sure, Fred said. Boyko had stopped at Wendy's. He purchased Fred a hamburger, fries, and water. He told Fred he didn't want to meet inside the house today. I'll meet you across the street, Boyko said, at the Ho Bowl. I'm eating my lunch. There was a large parking lot directly across the street from Fred's three-story house. The Ho Bowl was the only bowling alley in town. Boyko was parked there eating, waiting for Fred to join him. If Boyko walked into Fred's house and gave him the bag of food and the drink, it would become Fred's property. Outside, in his car, it was public property. All Boyko needed Fred to do was sip the water through the straw, and he'd have the DNA sample that had eluded BCI for the past few weeks. I don't know, Fred said, rethinking the situation. He seemed a bit more nervous now, most likely regarding leaving the house and meeting with Boyko at a neutral location. Come on, Fred, a free lunch. Who turns down a free lunch? Okay, they hung up. About about five minutes later, Boyko sat in his car and watched Fred cross the street and walk into the Hobo parking lot. Come on, get in, Fred, Boyko said when Fred arrived at the car. Sit down, let's talk this through. Fred sat down. Boyko handed him his meal. No, no, Fred said. I ate already. I'm not hungry. Some time went by. They discussed the federal probe. Fred seemed on edge, jumpy. He had reason to be. The federal case was heating up. At one point, Boyko said, come on, Fred, I bought this meal and you're going to refuse it? It came out in a joking manner. Boyko was acting as if Fred was hurting his feelings for not eating his food. Okay, Fred finally said, give me that bag. Fred grabbed the bag of food and the drink. Then he placed it down by his legs. I'll eat it later. You happy? As Fred looked out into the parking lot, perhaps surveying the landscape to see if anyone was watching them, Boyko turned the heat up in the car. I'm like cranking up the heat in the car, Boyko told me later, hoping that he's going to take a sip of that drink. I'm hot as hell. The sun was shining into the car on me with the heat blasting. I'm on fire. After a while, Fred reached down, grabbed his drink, and took a sip from the straw. Boyko thought, I met my objective. Now I just need to take possession of the drink. Fred opened the door. Thanks for lunch, Boyko. He said, I appreciate it. He had the drink in his hands. I'll drink this on my way back to the house. Great. Boyko had to be careful. He didn't want to break the trust between them he had spent so much time cultivating. If he showed his cards now, Fred would probably shut him down and stop talking. Boyko couldn't risk it, especially since he felt he had Fred on the ropes. As Fred was getting up to exit the car, Boyko thought fast and accidentally spilled his own drink all over himself. He grabbed some napkins and began dabbing at his blue suit. Fred, give me that water, Boyko said, so I can get this soda out. Fred handed Boyko the water. Thanks, Boyko said as Fred stood outside his vehicle. I'll be in touch. 
smart thinking. That's so smart. Honestly, though, like you're going to go to Wendy's and you're not going to get me like a Frosty or a Diet Coke with my burger. You're going to get me a water. A water also sounds like it was not a bottled water. Like it was a like tap water in a cup. <laughs> that's like – that's suspect in and of itself. Well, maybe he has diabetes. We don't know. Maybe he's looking out for him. Hmm. <laughs> mm. Mm. I'll buy you a frosty. I love you. <laughs> frosty and fries. Forever. Yeah. <laughs> Always. <laughs> Boyko was in touch four days later when the DNA results came in. It was a match. That was Stop. Fred Andros's little swimmers. Uh, I mean, like, the fact that he wouldn't do it makes me think that, mm-hmm. you know, like, if you have nothing to hide, you would do it. So he had definitely had sexual relations with Susan Fassett within 48 hours of her murder. So he's lying on two fronts here. One, he's claiming they hadn't seen each other in person since September when witnesses say otherwise. And two, he's also claiming his relationship with Susan was no longer sexual, which the presence of his semen inside of her would seem to indicate otherwise. Seriously. Also, how does he, does he not realize that semen stays inside a person like, longer than a day or two you know and i know people are just the, the stupidity blows my mind to be honest. i mean he could have even said you know we tried to break it off but we were still seeing each other you know yeah we were still intimate i didn't murder her exactly he has yeah. an alibi you know it looks way yeah. shadier that he lied about it you know he has an alibi <laughs> you're so skeptical about his <laughs> model airplane enthusiast club when Boyko returns to Fred's home, he doesn't disclose the DNA results to Fred. He wants to catch him in more lies and see what else he has to say. So he's basically giving him just enough rope to hang himself here. Fred swears up and down he hasn't been sexual with Susan in months and months. He claims he suffers from erectile dysfunction and is impotent. His wife, Diana, even backs him up, saying it's been five years since they have had sexual relations. Oh, but Yeah, she says it's really sad. She says, but she was satisfied with other components of their relationship. Oh, man. She's just dried up. I know. Maybe she's got a little vibe. Maybe. I hope so. I hope so, If you don't use it, you lose it. Yeah. Boyko asked him outright if he hired a hitman to kill Susan, and Andrews flatly denies it. However, he's proven himself extremely untrustworthy, and at this point, Jeff Fassett has been mostly ruled out as a suspect. So they put a tail on Fred to see if they can glean any additional information. They discovered that though Fred wasn't apparently pleasing his wife sexually anymore— He was picking up dozens of sex workers going out (gasps) nightly who all reported the same thing. He would pay them one crisp hundred dollar bill for a blowjob, but he was never able to finish. What? So how long did they have to suck his dick for? I don't don't know, but in the book they use this term that he could get it up, but he couldn't starburst. That's what they called coming. That, like, ruins Starburst for me. I know. All I could think about was the strawberry ones for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, so I don't know if he keeps trying, but they all – it was a bunch of different – like a dozen different sex workers all said the same thing, that at some point he would just be like, oh, it's okay. It's not going to happen. This was fine. Here you go, sweetie, you know? And yeah, he, he juiced inside He did with Susan. Susan. Maybe yeah. that's why I had a hard time letting her go. She was the magic ticket there. Yeah. There's so much I'm not going to say about this. <laughs> we both just sat in silence for 10 <laughs> seconds deciding all the things we weren't going to say. <laughs> I could read your mind. <laughs> so the state police weren't surprised by this as they had subpoenaed his medical records and found lots of Viagra prescribed. But they also wondered where the disgraced and currently out-of-work former town employee was getting his cash. Where was he getting all of these crisp $100 bills? Here you go, lady. we got to show you can a you, picture of this guy, can you, can you wet my knob for about an hour and now just sit here? Can you look at this guy? Ew! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he looks like a not like a less attractive Joe Pesci. He does. I'd rather bone Pesci for real. Oh my God, Jess. Oh, I know. He's not. You don't want to think about anyone starbursting. I was like really stoked for Susan that at least she got laid before she got shot, but it was by that guy. So it's like, ooh. Ooh, Low expectations having Susan over here. And you know, her husband was a pretty cute guy. He's really cute on the show that I saw him on. Really? Gosh, we run into this a lot where the mister or the mistress just isn't as cute. The, yeah, well, the, I, I, it's Yeah, what do we call something. a man, a man mistress? Is it a, a mister or is it like a, a mistro? Maestro? A maestro. I don't know. That's giving him a lot of credit. <laughs> we'll have to come up. We need, we need to come up with some word. You guys, if you have any ideas. Hit us up on social media or our email at lovers at lovemurder.love and tell us what we should use for a term for a male mistress. Because I have a feeling we're going to use that term a lot in this show. I mean, I'm kind of digging male mistress, but. We'll just say male mistress. For now, until someone now. gives us something better. Yes. And we'll give you guys a shout out. And someday when we have merchandise, we'll like send you a sticker or something. It'll yeah. say, I coined the term. Blank, because we don't know it yet. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Fred was into more than just skimming off the town, a former female friend said later. He had plenty of deals going on all over the place, and even in the Catskills. He owned land and other property. As for his impotence, Fred had a tough time getting it up and keeping it up. As the years passed, he couldn't function sexually much anymore, and it really ripped into his ego. Yep. At this point in the investigation, the New York State Police teamed up with the FBI to squeeze Fred from both sides. The FBI said that they would take his deal off the table if he wasn't cooperative in the murder investigation. Fred Andrus was between a rock and a hard place. Pushed by the feds, Fred finally broke down with his lies one by one. He admitted that he had had sex with Susan the day before her murder, though he claimed it was because she begged him for it. Huge eye roll. This guy looks like a troll. When the FBI pressed him to exonerate himself by naming other people who could possibly have had a hand in killing Susan, he accused everyone from Susan's husband, Jeff, which is obvious, to his own wife, Diana, which 
makes him a bastard trying to throw her under the bus. Mm-hmm. To William Paroli Sr., who was the local Republican Party committee chairman who Fred was due to testify against. So he was one of the higher-ups that Fred was turning on. Okay. So none of these wild accusations were remotely true. Finally, flailing, scared, and exhausted after hours of interrogation and being threatened with way more jail time than he was going to get if he had a deal, Fred introduced a brand new person into the mix. I mean, finally. Come on, dude. Finally. It was a woman Fred came out with next without warning by the name of Doreen or Darlene. He said he wasn't sure. She killed Susan. She met Susan in early 1999 and had gotten together with her on a number of occasions. So, Agent gotten together with her? Yeah, gotten together is what he's implying. Whoa, Susan. Uh Uh-huh. Agent (laughs) O'Connor. That's why I said there might be somebody else involved, but they weren't a semen contributor. (laughs) (laughs) Um... So O'Connor was surprised. Still, gotten together? What was Fred implying now? What? Her name is Darlene? Doreen? Which is it? O'Connor wanted to know. I asked Susan about her relationship with this woman, Fred explained. She told me it was a lesbian relationship. I was upset about it at first, but then accepted it. From Jeff Bassett to William Paroli to possibly his own wife, now to a woman named Darlene or Doreen over a lesbian relationship gone bad? What was Agent O'Connor supposed to believe? With each question he asked, Fred's story became more unbelievable. As O'Connor began to ask another question, Fred interrupted and added yet another story. This new tale Fred told was about the three of them, he and Susan and this other woman, and how he became part of the relationship between the two women. The question O'Connor and the FBI now faced, however, was if Fred was actually telling the truth. He had lied so much who could believe him. Further, was he just trying to get himself out of the moment as he had a history of doing in the past? So, I mean, it sounds like it. It sounds like it's crazy. He's been all over the place. Like, how how much resources are they going to yeah. devote to chasing down this lead? So, the mystery woman's name was not Doreen or Darlene. It was Dawn Silvernail. And this story is about to get a lot more interesting. Dawn Silvernail. Yes, Dawn was a 50-year-old, big-boned, heavy-set woman with a grandmother <laughs> with a grandmotherly like mop of gray hair. She is not what you think about when you think about sexy sexy wild swinging fun time. Oh, no. She looks like someone's nana. I'm going to be honest here. <sighs> She looks like too too granny for granny porn. (laughs) Oh, my God. Uh Uh-huh. So she had also known Fred Andrews for around 20 years and, like Susan, was married. Her marriage to Big Ed Silvernail seemed like a happy one. The two enjoyed shooting guns, boating, and drinking together. Born in Catskill, New York, Dawn enjoyed a pretty carefree existence with her second husband and her grown son from her first marriage. Dawn was relatively smart and hardworking with a management position as a supervisor and job coach for a highway maintenance company. When her involvement in the Susan Fassett murder was revealed, people were stunned. She had no criminal record, had always been gainfully employed, and had great family ties to the community. 
How the hell had she gotten caught up with that creep Fred Andros? Well, when the police caught up with Dawn after several interrogations, she told them exactly how she met Fred and what her role in the crime was. And boy, was it a doozy. This Dawn. Wait, I'm going to show you a picture of Dawn. Hold on. Doozy, doozy Dawn. Doozy Dawn, baby. Do you see that? Oh, no. <laughs> Do you see what I mean about, like, yeah. she looks like somebody's nana? Don met Fred 20 years earlier in the most 1970s way possible, over the CB radio. In modern times, we mostly think of CB radios as something only truckers use, but they were wildly popular in the 70s. It was like using the internet nowadays. You could communicate, get or give information or tips, and yes, even flirt. Dawn went by the handle Delta after the popular 70s song Delta Dawn, and Fred went inexplicably by Neptune. <laughs> Who knows? I don't know. He, th- he thought he was a god, apparently. Neptune, Fred. Yep. At the time, they were both married to their first spouses, and the two struck up a friendship, even socializing once or twice on double dates. Over the next few months, their communications got flirtier and flirtier, culminating in a sexual affair between Dawn and Fred. Throughout the years and more spouses for both parties, the affair and friendship continued. Dawn said the sex was wild and experimental. Fred often liked using toys or recording their sexual experiences, which seems to me a risky proposition when you're married to other people filming it. Uh, yeah. Also, but this is in like 1970, right? So they like mm-hmm. don't look like that then. No, <laughs> no. I don't think they look much better, to be honest. But it is they were 20 years younger. I also just like don't get it. Like, if you're like having fun experimental sex and you like it, why wouldn't you just like do that with your partner? I I don't get it either. I absolutely would bring Nathaniel into any weirdness I wanted to get into. Yeah, I just don't. It's just. It's like, weird. I think for Fred, it was a power thing. Um, okay. I think for him having secrets and knowing things about people and getting something over his wives, like even having a secret from them and being like, you're being a real bitch, but I like banged this other woman today and you don't even know it. You know, like yeah. Yeah. he had real power dynamics. Like he liked holding things over people's head. It well, definitely- yeah. He probably can't physically hold a lot of things over people's heads. So it's <laughs> good to metaphorically be able to yes exactly and dawn at this point she met him when her marriage was kind of already bad her first one yeah and then she broke up with her husband and it sounds like she moved to nashville for a little while and there was a guy she was dating down there and then she came back and it's almost like he was grandfathered in to her current marriage because it seems like she really loved her second husband So I don't know why she was still fooling around with Fred or what his hold on her was because I think her life would have certainly been a lot better if she had managed to completely break free of him, you know? Yeah. Yep, yep. She was also taller than him. Like, she's a big girl. He's a little guy. So I don't really know, understand the dynamics of this relationship, to be honest. But more than anything, Fred was a shoulder to cry on and a person who lent her cash when money was tight. So I guess that might have had something to do with it. That's just power again. Exactly. Over the years, Dawn's tab grew high, and she wasn't always able to pay Fred back in a timely manner. No problem, said Fred. I'll just hook you up with some of my friends for sex and take $100 off your tab for each date. (laughs) So he starts 
pimping her out. Yeah. And she's really matter-of-fact about this because she talked to the author of the book and she also was interviewed, I think, on 2020 or one of those shows. Okay. And she was just very straightforward about it. She was like, oh, it was just clean. It was a transaction. It wasn't a big deal. Like, she didn't look at it as anything cheating on her husband or anything. Very interesting. Like, delusional. Yeah. The men were all vetted by Fred, considered clean by his standards, and Dawn didn't get caught up with them. She usually barely knew their names, never had their contact information, and considered it a business transaction between her and Fred. It was with this agreement in mind that Dawn received a phone call from Fred one day. Fred told Dawn he was seeing a woman named Sue whose ultimate fantasy was sex with another woman. He wanted to know if Dawn might be interested. Dawn was on the fence. She wasn't exactly excited by the prospect, but it didn't disgust her. Her husband, Ed, had once tried to talk her into a menage a trois, and she had flatly refused him. But Fred was offering $350 for each time either the two ladies or the three of them would have sex. At more than three times her usual fee, Dawn felt she could be convinced. She decided to go through with it. However, when they finally got together for the sexy rendezvous, Dawn was surprised to find out that not only was Susan completely uninitiated in sapphic ways, she seemed not at all into it. Yeah, so he was just putting it together. Exactly, which is just a dirt bag. So, so gross and shitty. Yeah. So when they finally got together and everyone's naked, how do you feel about this? Dawn asked Susan when they got undressed. Dawn shrugged. She didn't really know. I should have known at that moment, Dawn recalled, looking back on that first time, that this was all Fred's idea. I could tell from the way Susan was acting. She impressed me as being withdrawn from the situation, as if she was doing Fred the favor. She wasn't eager to do this. She wasn't excited about it. Dawn and Susan were like two kidnapped victims under Fred's spell, caught up in his world of manipulation, believing whatever this man said. Sue was shy. She was not at all the type of person who would instigate something such as a lesbian affair. Susan wouldn't look Dawn in the eyes as they began to touch each other and kiss. Fred was the one pushing them both to perform, if you will. She was embarrassed, no doubt about it. Yeah, this is the least sexy sex ever. Non-consensual or non-exciting sex is not good, guys. A non-consensual paid sex. That's like a double whammy. Yeah, and somebody else is getting forced into this. So the only person who's enjoying this is creepy Fred. Scumbag. Mm-hmm. She was embarrassed, no doubt about it, Dawn said. It was like she was goaded into something she wasn't hot about doing. And that was not at all what he led me to believe going into it. The get-togethers between Fred, Susan, and Dawn would generally take place on weekday mornings. Also, the sexiest time yeah. of the week. Tuesday weekday. morning at 9.30. <laughs> yeah, and they would meet, like, in his garage or, like, at a water plant. Like, oh, super unsexy. He wouldn't even spring for, like, a $40 a night cheap motel. Come on. That's so bad. Remember back on episode four with all my exes, we thought that that was, like, the least sexy affair? This is the least sexy affair. Yeah. That at least, like, they had some sort of weird fire with each other. That was just (laughs) unsexy because they were, like, inexperienced. This is just gross. This is gross. It was – it was – Unsexy because they were having their affair after eating ham and cheese casserole. 
<laughs> and like roasted chicken casserole. Yes, lots of casseroles. Which... Yeah, that, I think casseroles are like an easy thing to prep, you know? Yeah, and you can reheat them very easily. <laughs> yeah, they travel well. <laughs> and if you guys are curious about the sexiest casseroles for a good time, check out episode four, All My Axes Live in Texas. <laughs> oh my god. So the threesome would end up getting together a total of six times, eventually with Fred pulling out the old video camera and filming the two women or all three of them together. Ugh. Ugh. Fred was the lead, Dawn explained, when it came to sex acts. He was the one telling the girls what to do and how to do it. Susan was especially shy. She really didn't want anything to do with it, but Dawn could tell she was going through with it for Fred's benefit for his sake entirely. Come on, Sue, Fred had said the day he was filming. Now just go with it. Susan stared at him. Everything will be fine, Fred said. You'll enjoy it. As Dawn stood by fully naked, she could easily tell that it was never Susan's idea to do this. Fred cajoled her all the way. Now, when I look back, I know this thing was never her idea. It was Fred's. Fred wasn't belligerent or angry in his direction, Dawn explained. He was nice, like he was trying to coax a child into trying a new food for the first time. Furthermore, Dawn could tell Susan was inexperienced in the actual lesbian sex acts. She didn't know what to do, which spoke to how it was without a doubt her first time. Of course, Dawn recalled, I had never been with another woman either, so this was new ground for me, but we figured it out. When it was over, Fred walked on to the door and showed her out. With $50 bills and a smile on his face, he counted out $350. Thanks, honey, he said, kissing her on the cheek. I'll be in touch. Ew. Very ew. And again, I cannot stress enough that these people look like grandparents. Yeah, it's just like, it's just not attractive. Like, no. And you know what? I'm not going to like age shame. If you look like grandparents or even you are grandparents and you want to have weird and wild three ways, you absolutely should get after it. And I'm with other people who want to. Exactly. Bing, bing, bing. That is the key. Yeah. Sex is really fun and sexy when it's with people who want to have sex with you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Mm-hmm. So Don reluctantly recounted the details of their sexual acts, the detectives, but stopped short when they pushed her to tell them if and why she had killed Susan. I didn't kill that woman, she said repeatedly and denied any involvement or communication beyond those six short sexual experiences. Dawn maintained the two women didn't even know each other's phone numbers and weren't even friends, let alone hot and heavy lesbian lovers. The detectives knew they were getting somewhere, but Dawn wouldn't budge on the murder. Dawn had been provided with food and water and breaks during the hours-long interrogation, but had been deprived of coffee and cigarettes, two substances that she was highly addicted to. So after hours and hours without either coffee or cigarettes and she's like a chain smoker yeah um she was getting very on edge so the police at that point knew she was getting close to a breaking point and they sent in big ed her husband to try to convince her to come clean the detectives explained that they were willing to speak to the da on dawn's behalf and get her the best deal they could she just needed to be honest 
wonder what they think that she knows. I wonder if they think that she knows that Fred did it or. They were trying to get her to implicate Fred for sure. Okay. So Ed came into the room. If you know something about this murder, Ed said to Dawn, please tell them. The agent was standing nearby listening. I love you, Dawn. I'll be by your side, Ed added. We'll make the best deal we can. Just please, please talk to them. And at this point, Ed just assumes that she knows something about this and she's trying not to throw Fred under the bus, you know? Yeah, yeah. So he's kind of like, why are you protecting this man? Just yeah. tell them what you know. Ed started walking toward the door. He had said what he needed to say. Dawn was sitting down with her head in her hands. Carrick and Gray, who are the uh, police officers, were standing. Before Ed left the room, he looked over at Dawn and said one last thing. Hey, now you buck up and be a silver nail. Then Ed left the room. It's so, so cute. Poor Ed. About an hour after Ed walked out, the officers spoke with Dawn, and they noticed that Dawn's shoulders had begun to droop. Her face had taken on a somber hue of paleness. Was she finally ready? Within a few moments of just sitting silent and thinking, Dawn broke down and explained what she wanted to talk about was what really happened that night. Dawn explained that one day Fred called her and told her he was calling in the ultimate favor and that if she did it for him, he would clear her sizable debt with him. At that point, Dawn estimated she owed him about five grand. Oh, the money was owed back? Well, so she was paying off her debt with him. So these like $100 drops, these $350 drops – they were supposed to be paying off her tab. I don't know in that one circumstance she talked about why he gave her cash. So she yeah, still but, owes him 5000 But wasn't she doing sexual acts in exchange or no? This was in addition to? This was in addition to her debt. So she said that she thinks at one point she owed him as much as 17000 At this point in time, she only owed him 5000 Whoa. Yeah, and I don't know if he was charging her interest or what the situation was. I know that she had kind of, though she always had a job, she had kind of fallen on hard times when she moved back from Nashville or something. So I don't know if it was car payments, house payments, or what. She was not, to least to my knowledge, a spendy woman. Like, she wasn't spending this frivolously. I think she just didn't have a lot of resources. Okay. However, if she didn't pull this job for him, there was going to be hell to pay. What was the job? Dawn inquired. Fred told her that she had to kill Susan for him. Uh Uh-huh. This was necessary because Susan was set to testify against him when it came time for his federal corruption case to go to court. Shit. Susan, Fred insisted, was causing him and the big guy, meaning William Paroli, problems with the corruption investigation, and now she needed to go away permanently. So he also told her that there was a specific date that she was going to be testifying, so it needed to happen before that date. Dawn repeatedly told Fred that she wouldn't murder Susan on his behalf. Finally, one day- But isn't that a lie? Wouldn't the cops know if Susan was going to be testifying? They would, and this is something they look into. Okay. So finally, one day, the clock ticking for Fred, he made Dawn come over to his house, and he pulled out some paparazzi-style photos and spread them across his dining room table. At first, she was confused, but as the subjects of the photos came into focus, she was horrified. 
It was her mother, her son, her sisters, her stepchildren, her husband, and even her in-laws, all captured on film without their knowledge in uncrowded public places going about their business. She picked up one of her aunt walking her dog in a secluded and woodsy part of Catskill. Would be a real shame, Fred said, if there were a hit-and-run accident, that lady could get badly hurt. Wow. Mm-hmm. He's bad. Dawn was stunned at what he was implying. She picked up a photo of her son, who appeared to be taking a smoke break outside of the building he worked at. It was a factory building set in a remote location. In the photo, he was all by himself. It'd sure be awful if there was a drive-by shooting and your son was hit. Out there, nobody would even know. The noise of all those machines in the building, he trailed off, chuckling slightly to himself. What a piece of shit. Ugh, he's the worst. And also, again, this is not something he's doing. He's – either he took the photos or he got somebody else to take the photos. Yeah. And now he's suggesting that he could get somebody else to take care of her loved ones. He's manipulative. If she doesn't – yeah. If she if doesn't, she doesn't do something that he wants. Which is so ridiculous because why don't you use one of those other hitmen that you're going to use to kill her family to kill Susan? Exactly. Bingo. Big question. So at this point, Dawn was trembling. You do this one thing for me. In addition to members of your family staying healthy, I'll exonerate that debt you owe me. Dawn could barely respond. So many thoughts were flying through her head. So many rumors and whispers about her so-called friends' violence and cruelty throughout the years. She remembered that his first wife had been terrified of him. During the divorce proceedings, he had not only hired someone to run her off the road when that failed to injure her, he hired a dump truck driver to swerve into her lane and hit her. Wow. If this man would do that to a woman he had once loved, what would he be willing to do to people he didn't even know? Not to mention the videotapes he had of her engaging in sexual acts with him and Susan. If he sent those to Ed, her marriage would be over. So he has a lot of collateral on her. Whoa. Backed into a corner and firmly believing the aggressive troll of a man would follow through on his threats, Don agreed to be his hitman. I know. Bad choices. This is like... This is kind of like that phrase, like, if you lay down with dogs, you wake up with fleas. Don't. Mm -hmm. If she knew that about his ex-wife and what he had done, she should have cut him out of her life a long time ago. Yeah, she shouldn't have been borrowing money from him, period. No. There's other people. There's people that you can go to. There's financial institutions that can help you with these sort of things. And I I know, like, that they can't help everybody and, and people go on hard times. But, like, you get through with it. Not with surrounding yourself with these people and not by murdering someone. No. So she really felt like she had no choice. Later on, a few questions would linger exactly what you asked, Andy. If he was so powerful and able to kill her family, why couldn't he kill Susan or get another one of his shadowy henchmen to do it, you know? Exactly. And also, if he was truly the threat against her and she was going to kill someone, why not just kill him? He's the one threatening her family. Yeah, also, it's like he's going to tell the cops that Don killed Susan, and Susan's going to just be like, yeah, he hired me. Yeah. I mean, this is just laced with stupidity. It's so much <laughs> stupidity. I mean, 
how dumb was he in the interrogation to name her? I know. I know. Because he should have just shut up, dummied up, and been like, you don't have any proof that I did it. I now know. I'm going to point you in the direction of the person who's going to immediately point back to me. He's obviously not a real gangster or mobster. No. You know? not. Yeah, if he can't keep his mouth shut for two yeah. seconds. Yeah. And – He's he's just not an actual tough guy because he doesn't no. he's scared of prison, it sounds like to me. Yeah. This is just all over terrible. So Dawn, <laughs> who's intimidated, manipulated, and stressed, she's clearly not thinking rationally. She just is following orders. And this would be a choice that will haunt her for the rest of her life. Oh no. Yeah. Fred and Dawn decided that the relatively quiet church parking lot after her choir practice was the right place and time for the hit to take place. Yeah, no. Uh, it's like well, Tweedledee and Tweedledum over here. Yeah, I guess at one point he like told Dawn where Susan lived and she went – like she parked across the street from their house and, you know, was going to like snipe or kill her around their house for some reason. And her son and his girlfriend came out because they saw somebody lurking around the house. Like, we live out in the country-ish. You don't go on people's property, and you certainly will be noticed if you're walking around their house, you know? Yeah, walking on Route 44. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, so that's why they, after that clearly wasn't going to work out, they decided to do it at her choir practice at church, which is just so terrible. So sad. For days before the shooting, Dawn could neither sleep nor eat. She didn't know how she'd be able to take an innocent human life near a house of God of all places. But she felt she must go through with it. Fred set up his airtight alibi and instructed her to drop off the gun at a pre-selected roadside spot after the diabolical deed was done. His plans were to obscure the ballistics report by damaging the inside of the barrel of Dawn's forty-five with woodworking tools. By altering the grooves in the barrel, the bullets that had passed through wouldn't be able to be matched to that particular gun. When he was finished, he would return the murder weapon to the same spot and page her to pick it up. So this is their plan. Okay. Now that the logistics were set, all that was left to do was to kill Susan. Dawn drove around downtown Pleasant Valley in a daze before the killings. She picked up a dozen donuts at Dunkin', which is the same Dunkin' Donuts I go to on my way to Poughkeepsie. Stop. Yeah, so I've been in that Dunkin' Donuts. (laughs) (laughs) And she ate one donut after the other and called Fred repeatedly until he snapped at her to stop calling him and get it over with. The appointed hour came both too soon and too long, and before she knew what she was doing, Dawn pulled alongside Susan's Jeep Cherokee and began shooting. Shit. Mm Mm-hmm. No wonder it was messy. Yeah. I mean, this woman is not an assassin over here. It sounds brutal, though. Listen to this. The first shot broke through the driver's side glass window on Susan's Jeep and hit her squarely in the neck, piercing two major arteries. These two common carotid arteries deliver most of the blood to the brain. Sever one or both, and the brain will cease functioning within five to ten seconds, thus rendering the victim unconscious, but not dead, not yet. 
The first shot could not have been more accurate. It actually went through the window, entered Susan's neck at her common carotid artery, traveled on a flat plane of what would be her throat on an east to west trajectory, and exited her body through her common carotid on the opposite side of her neck. It subsequently passed through the passenger side window and jetted off toward a wooded area near the north side of the parking lot. When Susan realized what had happened, or maybe she didn't, she went for the door. Maybe it was instinct. Maybe she knew she had been shot. Either way, Susan opened her door and fell out of her Jeep onto the ground. That's when Dawn unloaded her weapon. Pop, 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 pop. In rapid succession, the empty hot shells flung out of the gun and landed inside her car on the seat and floor. I fired the gun until it wouldn't fire anymore, Dawn said later. My mind was racing. Oh, God. Ugh, I feel sick to my stomach just thinking about this for both of them. Yeah. Like, obviously, I have less sympathy for Dawn. She got herself involved in this, but I can't imagine doing that to a human being. No, especially if you're not, like, a killer. You exactly. Know? Yeah. She tearfully admitted the whole plot and murder to the detectives and stopped exhausted. At this point, Dawn was officially charged with murder, and she called a lawyer who immediately set out to arrange a deal with the district attorney's office. If Dawn produced this testimony and evidence against Fred at a trial, there was a chance she wouldn't be facing life behind bars. With good behavior, she might see the light of day some years in the future. While Dawn met with lawyers and contemplated her fate from a jail cell, the investigators built their case against Fred and prepared the proper warrants for a search and ultimately an arrest. They're coming for Fred. <laughs> Based on Dawn's statements, they had enough to arrest Fred at this point. On December 30th, 1999, which is almost Y2K, baby. Yep, yep. I feel like gonna end. the world was going to end. Well, it's definitely going to end for Fred. Uh-oh. At 8 a.m., Lieutenant Boyko and three other police officers showed up at Fred's door with a warrant. Boyko knew Fred best, so he went to the front door with the hopes that Fred would go peacefully. The other three colleagues surrounded the house in case Fred tried to escape. Boyko knocked several times with no answer. At this point, Fred must have known that they were coming for him. I mean, obviously. He had pointed them to Dawn, like we said. So dumb. So dumb. Boyko went around the house to a side door and continued to knock loudly there. Finally, Fred's teenage son answered the door. Oh. He denied his father was in the house. Yeah. The surveillance team that had been monitoring Fred's whereabouts since Dawn's confession indicated otherwise. Fred was definitely home. <laughs> they're like, they're like, uh, yeah, he's there. He, we know he's in there. Nice yeah. tribe kid. Oh, and also he's effing everybody's life up and he's also he's asking his, his kid. kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so gross. You're asking your kid to tell the cops that you're not there. Like, get a fucking life, dude. I think that's the grossest when people involve their children in their yeah. murderous plots. Yeah. Boyko showed the teen his search warrant and arrest warrant and entered the house over the kids' protestations. The mood was getting increasingly hostile. Fred was not forthcoming as Boyko yelled for him to come out with his hands raised. One of the officers gently pulled the teenager out of the home and Boyko and his remaining partner cased the house. They searched every room and closet, but they couldn't find him. Finally, Yeah, so they're paying... A very high stakes game of hide and seek right now with him. Yeah. 
pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Fred, Fred, uh, come Ollie, out, Ollie, come Ollie, out. free. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Finally, Boyko spotted a closed attic door. And it's one of those ones that pull down from the ceiling, you know? Yeah. Fred, listen, you know why we're here, he yelled up the stairs. You know what this is about. I need to talk to you about what you did to Susan. After several moments of silence, Boyko told Fred he was coming up. So he starts up the stairs, and that's when he hears a loud bang. It was a gunshot. He killed himself? Maybe, or maybe he shot at Boyko. We don't know. We're about to know, though. I'm about to tell you. (laughs) I was going to say, that's, like, really brave for Boyko to walk up there. Right? And he knows he had those guns. I don't know if they took him – I don't think they took them from his house at that point. So I don't think they could. Yeah. Yeah. So he's, he's, it is pretty brave. So at this point, Boyko's okay. Boyko bolted as fast as he could down the stairs, his partner in front of him. They were back on the second main floor within seconds. No one had been hit. It hadn't sounded like a normal gunshot either. It was muffled and soft with just the whisper of a faint thud afterward. While they were deciphering what had happened, somebody called in shots fired, which mobilized the troops and sent scores of officers heading into Fred's house. The investigator downstairs and the one outside with the kids hadn't even heard the shot. Boyko stood at the bottom of the stairs, still wondering what had happened. Shh, he said. Do you hear that? It was movement. Moaning. Someone was gasping for air. Fred? Was it a ploy? Had Fred fired at Boyko and missed? Those investigators standing at the bottom of the stairs had all wondered, especially Boyko. Fred, are you up there? Boyko yelled. Can you hear me, Fred? Are you hurt? No answer. Fred, I want you to moan if you're hurt and can hear me. Boyko heard a weak-sounding groan. He looked at his (laughs) colleagues. He's hurt. Had Fred shot himself? Was that the sound of his gun going off? Fred, I want to come up and help you, Boyko said. Moan if you'd like me to come up and help you. A whine. Boyko could tell Fred was trying to talk but couldn't. Make sure the gun isn't anywhere near you. Even a semi-conscious man with a gun can be dangerous. Fred was moving around on the ground. They could hear him. Fred, I'm coming up now and my purpose is to help you. Make sure the gun is not in your hand or anywhere near you. Oh my God, I- he's a saint. I would be like, nope, 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 nope. Nope. Because <laughs> he could be just playing pretend. Uh-huh. He's been lying for this entire Story. Process. In his yeah. entire life. Yes. Yep. I'd have to interpret the gun in your hand as an aggressive action and take action, Fred. Do you understand me? Another faint moaning sound. Several BCI investigators went up the stairs. When Boyko came around the corner of the attic stairs, he saw Fred lying on his back, the gun a few feet away from him. There was a large pool of blood by Fred's side. It appeared he had tried to shoot himself in the head underneath his chin, but he had misfired and shot the bottom of his jaw off instead. Just like Taunch. Just like Taunch. He taunched it up. Oh, God, guys. I mean, this makes me think, not that anyone should know how to kill themselves, that you should just put it to the side of your head, right? I think this I was a, this was more of a pistol too. Like the Taunch situation, he had a shotgun, which I I can see why you'd have to do it that way, you know. I just don't try to kill yourself. Just don't try to kill yourself. Yeah, yeah. that's like, much better than mine. Really, like <laughs> become an expert on it if you're gonna do it. No, just don't do it. <laughs> no, it's so bad, and your kids there, like, come on, bro. His 
teenage son was in the house, and I guess one of his teenage son's friends were there too. Come on. Come on. Near the top of the stairs, on the side of the wall, Boyko noticed where the bullet had lodged into the wall. He had been standing not a foot from where the bullet had entered the wall. But how, he wondered, staring at it. If Fred had held the gun underneath his chin and fired, the bullet, if anywhere, would have lodged itself in the ceiling, which would make sense. The bullet had entered Fred's face below his chin, traveled up through the inside of his mouth, shattering his jaw into his navel cavity, and then it ricocheted off the inside bone of his upper nose, thus taking a complete 90-degree turn, traveling out of his body on an east-to-west plane and entering the wall near Boyko's How hard is his nose bone? (laughs) I don't know. What what the fuck? Isn't that the most insane thing you've ever heard? That's just like karmic bullet moves i don't know what that is that's like the bullet being like nope he doesn't look good i have to say he doesn't look as bad as taunch but this did not improve his looks no (laughs) so fred was in bad shape as you can imagine he ended up uh getting brought to a local hospital and then he was actually airlifted to a westchester hospital because they had a better icu there and he finally stabilized he was going to live and then He was going to pay for what he had done. Why do you say it like that? Because he, because he's a bad guy. Okay, I didn't know if there was like some sort of other twist going on. I was like. No, that was just me trying to, trying and failing to be dramatic. (laughs) (laughs) I also looked like directly in Andy's eyes when I said that. She's like, is this a subliminal message? What are you doing? I was going for effect. Am I supposed to be picking something up that you're putting down? But no, you're just putting it down like really on the nose. Just for once. Real obvious. Um, So while Fred is going through multiple surgeries and recuperating, Boyko and his team were continuing to work on the case. He talked to the FBI and the prosecution team trying to convict William Paroli Sr. And it turned out while they were aware of who Susan was insofar as an affair partner of one of their major witnesses, She had never been interviewed in regards to the case and was absolutely never going to testify against Fred or William Paroli. That was a complete bold-faced lie. The true motive, it seemed to Boyko and the other detectives, was jealousy and revenge. Susan had finally put her foot down and was truly leaving Fred for good so that she could rebuild her marriage and focus on her family. Okay. I mean, maybe that was like a goodbye boink then. I know. I'm like, mm. I know. It doesn't seem like either of the situations add up. No. And we don't know because she's not. Because she's not with us. Yeah, we don't know. Yeah. So that's the the motive that they're going to go with for trial. And I mean, okay. it's the only thing that makes sense. But it, this whole thing is, he's just a creeper, you know? Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. I can see why they would end with that motive and that storyline because Fred did have a history of going after women who left or rejected him. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think about what happened with his first wife, and I guess there were some other exes who testified to similar behavior, but he had never gone so low as to murder someone. It seemed like this time with unfortunate Susan he had. Yeah, but she was going to, he also said that she was going to testify. 
Yeah, but that was a lie. That's just what he told Dawn to get her to kill him. Got it, got it, got it. Then he, maybe she was the only one that could get him off. (gasps) That had to be it, right? Case solved. Case solved through sex. (laughs) That's the motive. If you're going to take away that starburst, then (laughs) you got to go. No more starburst for life means. Yeah, her her usefulness had expired, apparently. (laughs) Meanwhile, negotiations for Dawn's plea deal weren't going great. For whatever reason, Dawn expected a drastically reduced sentence for turning on Fred, even though she had never been promised any terms before she confessed. And in fact, they had only said, you help us and we'll try to help you. And they were kind of like, we'll talk to the DA. They never, like, got any terms on the table. And of course, she had also murdered somebody in cold blood. It doesn't matter the reasons or the catalyst behind them. She still murdered somebody. You don't just get to walk away from that. No. Yeah. So she was shocked that she like wasn't able to walk she away. She was somehow shocked that she wasn't getting basically a, a slap on the wrist in this. Once so, again, it's just not the brightest crayon in the box, no, you know? No, She turned down an initial offer of 22 years to life. Her attorney pushed for manslaughter, which carried an 8 to 25-year sentence. But again, let's be honest. What Dawn did- it's not was, manslaughter. It's not manslaughter. That's like if you get drunk and behind the wheel of a car and you accidentally run somebody down, that's manslaughter. She yeah, no, second-degree murder is going to be the best with like some sort of plea deal. Exactly, exactly. And that's what she ends up doing, you know, because she willingly and intentionally executed Susan with significant premeditation, you know? Yeah, yeah. So she also had a Taurus? Was that just a quinketing? It was just a coincidence. Isn't that wild? I mean, I feel like those were really popular, like, right at the turn of They were. Tauruses were everywhere. Yeah. (laughs) They were, like, weird, like, boat, weird shaped bulbous cars yes it's very weird i wonder if fred andros knew that that they had the same car he seemed to have a lot of time to scheme so i would yeah he was an out of work corrupt asshole he had nothing to do but scheme and try to blow his load unsuccessfully yeah so naturally the da rejected the manslaughter both sides were frustrated and eventually the da made one final offer to dawn making it very clear that if she rejected that she'd be trying her luck with a jury which she didn't want to do because they had a pretty strong case against her so she reluctantly accepted the deal for 18 years to life and she would most likely get 18 years with good behavior so cool i think that's a pretty sweet deal for killing someone yeah, and I mean, I do feel I feel for Don. Like I, you know, obviously, like we don't know what it's like to be stuck in like that horrible situation where you need money that bad, and you're, you know, doing sexual favors for random people for cash. It's just it seems like she kind of made a bunch of bad decisions, but was also in a horrible situation. Yeah, things had gone really, really wrong. I think though, you'd be surprised how she talks about this later. She, in direct contrast to a lot of the people we've covered, owns it completely. She's like – And is she remorseful? She's very remorseful. She's very sorry. And she's like, I made the choices that led me down that path. I'm the person who shot her. At the end of the day, obviously, Fred has a lot 
to blame and that's why I'm testifying against him and I think he deserves to share in the blame. But yeah. I'm aware that I'm the person who took her life. Like she's yeah. – and which I think is really good and it's why she ultimately gets out, not to spoiler exactly. alert it, but that's what parole boards want to hear, you know? Yeah. So it took an additional month for a grand jury to indict Fred Andros, but the DA's office released a state on April 26, 2000, that Fred was facing new charges in the death of Susan Fassett. He was indicted under second-degree conspiracy charges, as well as the original accusation of second-degree murder. With Dawn prepared to testify against Fred, the DA believed there was no way Fred was going to get out of this one. He might have pushed people around his entire life and made himself out to be some sort of big shot, but Fred Andros was staring down the barrel of a life sentence considering he was 60 years old. And he wasn't in good shape, this guy, anyway. Yeah, no. He needs to be in jail forever. I agree. Yeah. Our murderous pair's love lives weren't going particularly well either. Both Diana and Ed had filed for divorce from their respective spouses, which I think is good. Yeah. For Diana, finding out about the numerous infidelities and visits to sex workers, all the while claiming he was impotent to her was the final straw. Poor girl. Yeah. And also, she had stood by him for one million humiliations. The corruption scandal, him being out of work because of that, the charges, the Susan affair, I guess she did know about as well. But all of a sudden now, it's... It's just everything and their personal lives are all over the newspaper. So everybody yeah, knows. And he shot his face off. And he shot his face off. Oh, in their home. Let's not forget. <laughs> Never forget when you look at his face. We will definitely put his before and afters up on the Instagram. <laughs> Why? Because his before is still so bad you can't tell. His, I was expect. I didn't know, honestly, when I looked at his after, I was like, the way they described him, I was like, is this before or after? It's, yeah, yeah. It's just so gross looking before and after. Okay, and then also there's the knowledge that he coerced one lover to kill another lover. I mean, this is just too much. No woman should stay through this, you know? Yeah, no, no. There's there's no such stand by your man. Not this time. No, bye. Bye. Big Ed was similarly devastated and felt he had no other choice than to divorce Dawn. He admitted, yeah, I doubt he was expecting that. Oh, he was shocked. And he still yeah. loved her. I mean, when, yeah. he was, when he was telling her that she should just tell them what she knew, he was assuming that she had some insider knowledge of something that had happened. Not that she had been a shot her and (laughs) shot somebody and was involved in this like myriad sex trysts and a murder plot. Crazy. I mean, and they got along really well. I mean, he talked to the Poughkeepsie Journal and he told them that they had had a wonderful marriage. He was so happy with her. He said that he was getting a divorce, but he was actually still in love with her while he was divorcing her. He just couldn't handle all the secrets and lies. The affair of her, you know, the details of her affair with Fred, the lesbian tryst, the sex work dates, you know, that Fred set her up on. And of course, the biggie, murder. Yeah. We're just all too much for him to truly comprehend and be able to forgive. So Fred, like I said, never a handsome man, was now disfigured, divorced, and had just been sentenced to 33 months in prison for his role in the corruption scandal. 33 months, that's it? 
that's all he got because he had that deal with the feds for what he has been doing. So that's not for the murder. That's for the the corruption. Got it. Got it. Okay. Okay. I was yeah. like, excuse uh, <laughs> Yeah. No. No. So he had been um he had been sentenced to thirty three months for the corruptions charges. Okay, and then they bring him to court for the other shit. Exactly. Okay. And so yeah, crime does not pay, and neither does shooting your face off. Meanwhile, Dawn had suffered her own horrific injury while incarcerated. So this is just a bizarre coincidence, but she had apparently volunteered to move this massive accordion-like room divider. And the only thing I can think of is like, I don't don't know if your school had this, but they had like these big, huge, tall, like accordion-like room dividers when you like divided the gym sections, you know? Yep, yep. So it's like one of those. And since she was a bigger gal, like I've told you, she was one of the people that they asked to help move it. Okay. As they were moving the divider across the room, Dawn had a firm grip on one end, but it started to roll towards the other side quickly, and she could not get her entire hand out of the way before the momentum created by its own weight slammed it closed, like where the corners go in. Yeah. As it met the opposite end, the heavy partition dug into Dawn's middle finger, and when she reacted to the pain by pulling the finger out from between the wall and the door, she peeled off the skin on her finger. Jesse, 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 is this necessary to this story? Like stripping a piece of coating off a copper wire. The tip of her finger from the first knuckle was gone. <laughs> Sorry, maybe I should have trigger warning to that one. I like that I just kept talking over you. Like, <laughs> My face is the same color as our logo right now. Right, <laughs> <bright> red. <sighs> oh, Jesse. Yeah. <laughs> You have to understand, it takes a lot to truly horrify Andy, and it's kind of my life's work. So you're all welcome for being a party to that. I hope I didn't gross you all out too badly. Oh, I hope that everyone – I, like, don't know how I'm going to edit that part. <laughs> we might have to cut it out. If this remains, I got you. Okay. Okay. Oh, uh, God. Uh, it Doesn't that ugh. sound horrific, though? No, I, like, can't. I can't yeah, with not, that. Not good. So <laughs> afterwards, Dawn found a lawyer in New York City to sue the town of Poughkeepsie for the finger she lost during the accident at jail. Honey. Papers filed with the clerk indicated that Dawn was seeking $2 million in damages for losing part of her finger. The suit placed the blame on the corrections guard who was helping Dawn close the folding divider. Dawn's lawyer made the claim that Dawn was a secretary and that the loss of the fingertip would severely hamper her typing skills, which disallowed her from making an honest living when she was released. I can't with that. I can't with this. I don't think it, I don't think she got anywhere with it because I could not find any evidence that she won such a case. I can't. Like you cold-blooded murdered someone (laughs) in a church parking lot. Yeah, and now you're missing a little bit of your middle finger and you're like all sad about it. You're going to sue the city. For $2 million. Come on. Because it's going to affect your secretarial work. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, and also, 
when is she going to get out? I mean, this was when she was, she hadn't even actually been sentenced at this point because she has to appear at his trial first before they give her the deal. And yes. so when is she saying that she's going to get out and do this anyway? It was outrageous. In a murder case that seemed to have every plot twist and sexy moment a hit soap opera had, nothing was over the top. <laughs> Here was a woman, just like you said, who admitted murdering a woman in a church parking lot that she'd had lesbian sex with on numerous occasions, now suing the prison holding her. What is going on? <laughs> to look at it on paper, a town resident said, well, it just seemed too incredible to be true is wild this is like so hudson valley wild it is so it's so i'm so glad i found a local case i have to find an la case for you which i feel like will be easier to do in la well this story though goes to show you're not safe anywhere you're not safe in a church nope. parking lot in pleasant valley nope nope well this she was also caught up with the wrong people though susan shouldn't have been boning fred no i guess she liked him short and dirty huh well, this too incredible to be true story was about to heat up because Fred Andros's trial began in January of 2001. The prosecution hammered down on Fred's intimidation tactics, poor quality of character, manipulation, and other criminal activities. Their star witnesses were Diana, who testified against her recently new ex-husband, and, of course, Dawn, who spilled the whole CD arrangement and ultimate murder plot for the courtroom. The defense's story was that though Fred Andros had introduced Susan and Dawn, they had independently struck up a lesbian relationship, and that had been the motivation behind the murder. So their, their idea is that Susan jilted Dawn, and Dawn, in a jealous rage, killed Susan. Mm-hmm. After all, no <laughs> physical evidence could tie Fred to the scene or murder weapon, and he did have an alibi. But this theory fell apart when telephone records proved that the two women had never, ever called one another on the phone, paged the other person, written, or otherwise contacted each other. Their relationship was limited to the Fred-manipulated sex acts only a handful of times. They yep. had no contact. Dawn performed well on the stand, confidently and succinctly outlining the events for the prosecution and holding her own when the defense attorney came at her regarding her antidepressant usage, which is A, so rude, and B, so ridiculous. That's such a low blow and, like, not relevant. It's such a 90s, early 2000 things to do because 20 years ago, people were just not aware of mental health and sensitive no. to it. So yeah. they were throwing everything they could to make her look like crazy or unhinged. unhinged. Exactly. But that's yeah. like insane. Like, A – everyone's on an antidepressant or an anti-anxiety medication. And if people aren't, they usually drink or like smoke pot or do something else to self-medicate. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. So it, that was just like a very 2000s low blow here. There wasn't much more they could do to prove that Dawn and Susan had actually had a lesbian love affair. So I guess that's basically all they had to go on was that she admitted to having sex with Susan and she was on antidepressants. That seems like a very weak case. Yeah. In direct opposition to the lack of communication between the two women in question, there were hundreds of messages between Fred and Susan and Fred and Dawn. 
A forensic detective even showed on the stand that on the day of the murder, Dawn and Fred had called and paged each other a whopping 37 times. Wow. Mm-hmm. So obviously he has a huge part in this. Yeah. Last but certainly not least, Fred Andros got on the stand in his own defense. Fred lied, lied, lied. He lied like the dirty little rug man he is. (laughs) (laughs) He claimed that he'd only slept with Dawn once or twice early on in the 70s, that he had never had a threesome with her and Susan. So I guess that they could never find the videotapes. It looks like he must have destroyed them when he knew the cops were closing in on him because they they didn't have the tape evidence, which is bad for the (laughs) investigators, but good for all of us that and the jury that didn't have to be subjected (laughs) to that video. (laughs) I also feel like it's much more of a like it's much more difficult for Don to have had to admit to sleeping with him. Yes. Then, you know, like, it's like, dude, you've been lying about everything and she already came clean about all this shit. Like, she was, other than in her initial interrogation saying, I didn't kill her, she's been honest this entire time when yeah. he has proved to lie at every juncture, every question. Yeah. 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 He also suggested he saw sparks fly between the two women when they all ran into each other randomly in 1998. Uh-huh. Ran him for sex. Yeah. He claims Susan herself had admitted the lesbian affair, which seems extremely unlikely that they had even had this affair because there's not a shred of evidence that they ever spoke to each other outside of those singular events. So ridiculous. When the prosecution asked him why he had attempted suicide at the moment the cops came to arrest him, surely an indicator of guilt, he claimed it had nothing to do with his impending arrest. He simply was devastated about losing Susan who he now was attempting to paint as the lost love of his life. This fucking guy. Un-fucking-believable. So months later, after he's been mourning Susan this entire time, and even his wife testified that when they got the call from the FBI agent, he was just like, okay, and he rolled back over and went to sleep. So clearly he wasn't upset about it. This is when he decides at this exact moment when the police are outside his house that now is the time to kill himself for Susan. Yeah, he's full of baloney. Yeah, he's full of shit. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems that the jury agreed with our assessment because after a month-long trial and a day's worth of deliberation, they declared Fred unanimously guilty on both counts of murder and conspiracy. Good. Bye, Fred. Bye. The judge sentenced Fred Andros to the maximum sentence of 25 years to life on one count and eight years to life on the other. Fred was 61 in poor health and had three separate prison terms to endure. It seemed rather unlikely that he would get out alive. It also seemed unlikely that anyone cared, save for two (laughs) of his children. He had bullied, manipulated, bribed, coerced, and plotted his way into a cold jail cell. And not a single person felt bad for him. Karma's a bitch, Fred. Yep. Mm -hmm. For the next 20 months, Fred lived a lonely, desolate existence in the Clinton Correctional Facility in Dannemora, New York. On November 29th, 2002, the devil came to collect his henchmen, and Fred passed away of a massive heart attack. Stop. 
he died only 20 months into his sentence. When Don found out about it, she was like, damn, he got out of his jail sentence. <laughs> She's like, screw that guy. I'm still doing my time. And he got to get out early. <laughs> so um, M. William Phelps interviewed Jason about how the family felt about, you know, his mother's killer dying in prison. Yeah. And this is what he said. One would think the Facet family would entertain a bit of relief in knowing that Susan's killer had met death himself. But Jason Facet wasn't one to cheer at another person's misfortune, no matter who he was or what he did. Still, Jason said, he was certain Fred had gone to his grave being the one thing nobody wanted to be when confronting his maker, a liar. He lied to himself and everybody around him, Jason reflected, without coming clean. No remorse, no repenting. I'm not saying you need to be absolved or anything like that or even saved to go to heaven. It's not that. I just think a heart attack or something that dramatic, a death with no forewarning, for example, is born out of the lifestyle people create through things like lying. Yeah, I mean, that's a smart kid. By doing bad things. Mm-hmm. Jason is entirely convinced that Fred Andrus believed in his mind that he'd done nothing wrong. And that's where the true depravity of who Fred was comes into play for Jason. As far as everyone else around him is concerned, Fred Andrus was a god. But his whole life was a lie. A damn lie. And inside, I know in my heart that Fred Andrus knew he was a liar as he went into the cardiac arrest and died alone inside that cold and lonely prison cell wise jason so wise so amen kid and i mean he's older than us i'm saying kid now but amen jason i hope that you and your family found peace and happiness because you certainly deserve it yeah he sounds very insightful yeah he was he was interviewed for a lot of the portions of the book and it seems like he also developed a great relationship with the author and the oh, last cool. thing he said was, you know, I loved her a lot and she made a lot of mistakes, but she was a wonderful human being and I hope you tell her story well, you know. Oh. So Dawn served her time in Bedford Hills, the same prison old Pammy Smart is still in. What? Yeah. A lot of people have gone through Bedford Hills. We'll have to keep track of this. So far we've had Pammy and now, uh, now Dawn Silver now. Is it a female prison? Yes. Yep. Okay. She was a model inmate and refreshingly upfront about her guilt and regret. When speaking to M. Williams, she said, one of the hardest things I have to face every day is that I took a life and that there's no real way for me to repeat. There's no real way for me to repay that to give a life back. Dawn. Oh, yeah. No, there's just nothing. Dawn was asked in prison once what she would ask for if granted three wishes. She said, my three wishes are simple, that today was October 28th, 1999, that Susan Fassett was still alive, and that my husband, Ed, still loved me. Yeah, you lost everything, babe. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately for Dawn, it looks like none of those wishes would come true. Ed followed through with the divorce, and Dawn is currently listed as maritally single. The silver lining for Ms. Silvernail, however, was that she was released on parole around Christmas time in 2017. She is now living a quiet life in her early 70s outside of Buffalo, New York. M. William Phelps has interviewed numerous murderers in his years as a crime writer, and he said that Dawn was the only killer with a conscience that he ever met. Wow. 
Mm-hmm. So I think that she paid her debt to society. I don't like we've talked about this before with some of the people who were manipulated into murdering. It doesn't make it any easier on the family of the loved ones and it, it doesn't make up for the life they stole. But at least it sounds like she's regretful and owning up yeah. to it. Yeah. And she's like 70 now. Yeah, she's 71. Wild. Yeah, so I hope she's staying on the straight and narrow and has a cat or a dog or some other form of companionship in her life, you know? Yeah. Good luck, Dawn. Okay, well, that is our episode <laughs> this week. It's so sad. Oh, and I mean, we can't even say anything. She doesn't even, you know, at least she can't flake people off anymore. <laughs> or it's like really sad. You can't even tell. It's only a half stub. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. So we're back to straight-up love murdery true crime where people get into bad relationships and bad things happen. And that's where we'll be for the next, you know, few months. And we'll do some little holiday asides. But we're going to leave the necrophilia alone for at least a couple months. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I could see our podcast being a PSA for future generations. <laughs> I'd like to think so too. All the things not to do in relationships. All right. So if you guys like this story and our return to love, murder, and true crime, please, please, please take a second to give us a five star and write us a little review. We had some really lovely comments this week. So we want to thank you from the bottom of our heart for each and every one of you. And we swear we're going to work on merch soon. We're going to be in person with each other and actually come up with a game plan, order merch, and we will plan on sending a little something out to everyone who's already reviewed us because you guys have been an awesome home team and we love you all. Yeah. So we'll prorate your review if you want to do it now. We'll definitely we'll definitely go back and get yeah. you something. So we're I don't want trying. you to hold out. Don't wait. We're actually we'll get like a better <laughs> better merch goes to the people. You've already done it. Yeah. <laughs> you guys out of the goodness of your hearts without us bribing you yet have left reviews and it really really makes us so happy. So thank yeah. you. In conclusion, the men who act like the biggest tend to be the smallest, literally in Fred's case. <laughs> Do not ever take Wendy's from an officer, especially if you've done something wrong, and especially if it doesn't come with a Frosty. <laughs> yeah, Frosty or bust. <laughs> frosty or bust. <laughs> and as always, we're all just one terrible, coerced, manipulated threesome away from getting murdered oh god hopefully not stay safe everybody thanks for listening bye